so we'll be in Matthew 16 today. Um, before we jump in, um, every week, uh, so we have four weeks in this series, every week, um, since this is a series about the church, we're talking about what the church is, why the church, how God has interacted with the church, what God's purpose is for his church, um, we thought it would be good is if every week we prayed for another church in our community. Um, because it's not just us, right, in this city. There are many churches, many theologically sound churches that are doing the work of the kingdom of God. And so this week, um, we're going to pray for Grace Church in Salado. So if you remember Grace Church, we partnered with them when we did Reset. Uh, their lead pastor is Jason Goings, um, and we worked with their missions pastor, David Laws. And so I talked with both of them this week and said, hey, if Renewal Church could pray for you, uh, what are some things that we could pray for? couple things that they mentioned um, on their shepherding side that they are a growing church um, and they are running into the issue of um, not knowing how to disciple their people well um, with their growth. And so they said to pray that as shepherds, we would learn to disciple well and create structures that is healthy for people. They also just planted a church in Gerald a few months ago. And so they said to pray for that church plant uh, and then to pray for other mission opportunities. They're in the same place we are trying to discern and ask God, where do you want us to serve? Where do you want us to go globally? How do we serve locally? And so uh, if you would, right now, uh, before we jump in, I'm going to go ahead and pray uh, for Grace Salado. And I task you with praying for them this week as well. We want God to be glorified in all the churches in our community. Uh, and so I'm going to pray for Grace Church Salado. Uh, and if you would, just pray for them this week. Father, we come to you and we ask um, for blessings on Grace Church in Salado. I pray for Jason and David and Lauren and, and, and all their many staff, um, God, that you would fill them up, that the ministry that they do would not be a burden, it would not be taxing, but it would be an overflow of their heart, that you would bless them and their families. I pray for, um, God, just their shepherding, that they would teach your word well and they would love with gentleness and truth to the people that you've brought there. Um, God, will you just fill that place up, that whole body up with joy as they serve the Lord this week. I pray for their church plant in Gerald. As we know, God, it, it, a church plant is it's hard, but it's beautiful. So I pray for lively worship this morning as they gather and hope as they think towards the future and what you're going to do. And I pray that they would, just like us, discern where it is that you would have them serve the world what their mission looks like, what have you called them to, um, how does making disciples look like in their body. Uh, and so, God, we, as brothers and sisters, we pray for our friends over at Grace Leto. May you build them up and bless them. In Jesus' name, amen. And so we'll do that every week with a different church. And so I encourage you as we go throughout the series, um, churches in the city are not our rivals. They are our friends. They're our brothers and sisters. And so uh, pray for them. Okay, Matthew chapter 16. I'm going to start in verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and other Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, 
And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell should not prevail, prevail against it. Um, so when I was a teenager, I took a job as a ranch hand, which might surprise some of you. Um, because if you know me, I'm definitely more of a city boy than a ranch hand or a country country. But part of that is because I've attempted to live the country boy life and I have failed miserably, okay? I was terrible at it. It did not go well for me, but I'll never forget uh, my first day working on this ranch. I show up and the guy in charge looked at me and he said, today you're going to build a fence. And I was like, okay, cool. He didn't give me any instructions. I didn't think I needed any. I had seen a lot of fences in my life. I know what they looked like. It looked like it wasn't too hard. And so I thought, I bet I could figure it out. So all he said was, the tools are in the barn. Fence goes over there. So get to work. He had already loaded up all the fence I needed and all the posts and all that stuff. So I went to the barn and I attempted to get my tools. And I got a shovel. That was it. Right? No gloves, no pliers, nothing. And I just started digging in this general area where he said this fence was supposed to go. And about after four hours later... I was sweating, I was miserable, my hands had blisters. Um, I couldn't get the post to fit right into the holes. And I was like, this is a nightmare, this is miserable. And the head ranch guy comes over and um, he said, what in the world are you doing? And in the most arrogant teenage tone I could find, I said, I'm building a fence, bro, all right? He said, you don't have any of the tools necessary to build a fence. He said, you need a post hole digger to put the post into. You need pliers. You need gloves so that you don't tear up your hands. And I realized in that moment that one, I was an idiot. Um, But two, I realized that I had made a lot of assumptions about what it took to build a fence, right? So why do I tell you that story? We're going to start a series about the church today. My suspicion is that a lot of us walk in here and go, we've seen a lot of church. I've heard a lot about church. I've been to a lot of church. My suspicion is that we come in with a lot of assumptions about what the church is. And the purpose of this series is to pull back the curtain and ask the question, what does God say the church is? What does his word say that the church is? That our assumptions begin to drown out the truth of what God intended for his church. And so the first thing that we need to do is go back to the basics when we talk about church. What does God's word say? Because a lot of times when people, the church get involved, we begin to focus on the particulars, right? We begin to focus on all the things that divide us, all the things that separate us, and all the, all the flaws, because the church is, and we'll talk about it, the church has many flaws. But today, let's dial the curtain back and just ask God, why? Why did you create us? Why did you put it? Why do we even bother gathering in this place? Why did you establish your church? So if you want to go all the way to the basics, in the New Testament, the word for church is the word ecclesia. Now, how many of you have pronounced it ecclesia? I've heard it a few times, right? So it's, it's traditionally pronounced ecclesia, but it can be pronounced ecclesia, or it can be pronounced ecclesia. Honestly, you're not wrong in saying that. It's, it's just a traditional pronunciation, but we don't actually know what it is supposed to sound like. But the most common pronunciation is ecclesia, and that's what I'll be saying. But it comes out of the verb ek kaleo. So ek means out of, and kaleo means to call. So at its core, it means to call out. And historically, 
that word would be used to call people out of their normal life to participate in something. It wasn't just limited to the church. It was used politically, socially. Uh, There were numerous scenarios where the word ecclesia was used in culture. Essentially, the word communicates the idea of an assembly, that you are called out to assemble with others for a purpose, to vote on something to have a party, that we are gathering for a reason. For example, in Acts 19, fascinating story, you see the word ecclesia used to describe a mob, okay, to describe a riot. Um, In Acts 19, Paul is in Ephesus, he's preaching the gospel, and people are just on fire for the Lord. I mean, they're so passionate about the words that Paul is saying, God is drawing so many people to his name that they stop buying idols in the city. And the people who make the idols get so ticked off that their income is gone that they start a riot in the city to shut Paul down. And if you see in Acts 19.32, it should be on the screen. In Acts 19.32, you get this. This is a description of that ecclesia, of that riot. It says, now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Sounds like a modern day church, doesn't it? Um, but you see that word there, assembly, ecclesia, right? But in this case, the people had, who had assembled, they didn't know why they were, they gathered, didn't know why they were there. Some people are saying we should be doing this. Some people are saying we should do this. And just imagine the scene, it's a riot. Some people are like, I don't know what's going on here, <laughs> right? So you see this ecclesia, right? And so you go throughout the New Testament and God will over time establish what that word means for us, what the assembly means means for us. And so for the rest of our time, I'm going to ask the question, why do we assemble? What is our role? Why has God gathered together? In the first place, we see that word assembly, ecclesia, in the New Testament is the passage that I read to you at the beginning. In Matthew 16, we see that Jesus takes his disciples to Caesarea Philippi. It is the furthest away from Jewish life that they will get. And I won't go fully into the story because we just covered this story a few weeks ago in the book of Mark, but Matthew includes a portion of the story that Mark does not. But Jesus asks his disciples a question, all right, when you're out on the streets, who do people say that I am? What is the word about me out there? And they say, well, they think you're one of the prophets like Jeremiah or Elijah. Basically, you're a very respected human being that has sent by God, and so then Jesus switches the question on them and asks them, okay, but who do you say that I am? And what does Peter say? He says, you are the Christ, which means Messiah. In Hebrew, the confession of Peter means that Jesus is the anointed one. And there were two kinds of people that were anointed. A priest, to say that, when, uh, to say that they had been separated by God, they had been set apart to help us connect to God. So a priest was anointed, And then you would anoint kings because they were set apart by God to lead the people of God. And all throughout the Old Testament, you see that there is one thread, one thread that leads to one person, one person that would be priest and king over all of us, someone that would reconcile us to God like a priest and a king that would lead us into God's kingdom. And Peter looks at Jesus and he says, we we believe that you are that guy. You're the one that all of scripture has led to. You are the Messiah, the anointed one. And so Jesus tells Peter in verse 17, it says, Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, 
but my father who is in heaven. He says, Simon, what you have just said did not come from your own mind. It did not come from your own thoughts. It is God who has revealed this to you. And he tells him, and I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church. I will build my ecclesia. I will build my assembly. Now, I want you to notice, because this is a, a common, simple truth that I think I often forget, and I think that we all often forget. Who is doing the building of the church? Jesus is. It's a very simple truth. But I think that many of the issues that we see in the church today come from misunderstanding that one truth, that it is Jesus who is building his church. The church is not my work. It's not your work. It's the work of God. This is not Colton's church. This isn't even your church. This is Jesus's church. It belongs to him. He owns it and he runs it. And as we go throughout the series, we'll talk about how God has tasked shepherds and how there are servants, people that built up the church that steward the word. But let's not make the mistake that too many often make. This false belief that we are the owners and the builders of Renewal Church. That's a mistake because that's not true. God has built this house and he has not given us ownership of it. He has invited us into it. That at the end of the day, we can have our ministry philosophy. Here's how we do things at Renewal Church. We can spend money on things. We can start Bible studies. But just because we do things as the church does not mean that we are in charge here. The Bible will illustrate this two different ways, two different metaphors. First, the Bible will call Jesus the cornerstone, right? Uh, Let me read to you from Ephesians 2, 19. Paul says, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So Paul says, hey, we are all members of the household of God. Not my house, not your house. This is God's house. And the central piece of this house, of this structure, is Jesus, the cornerstone. Without the cornerstone, this house falls apart, right? And it's a terrifying thing when a church loses sight of its cornerstone. I I can imagine that some of us have seen this, where you see a church begin to lose its identity in Christ. You you see them uh, begin to focus more on themselves. I would argue there was a season here at Renewal where that happened here. We lost who we are before God. We focus on ourselves instead of the cornerstone. You see it all the time where a pastor will begin to believe that they are the central piece of the church that this church centers around them, that if they didn't exist, the church would die. We've seen this. It's the reason I have you pray for me. It's not that far to think that I could become that arrogant. Anyone has that in them, which is why we have to be praying for our leaders. And it's not just pastors who do this, but it's Christians too. It's people like you that we attempt most of the time without, not intentionally, but we attempt to take ownership of the church away from Jesus and turn the church into something that we think it should be. They should be doing this, and they shouldn't be doing this, and we should be doing this. And it's our assumptions about what the church is. We should have this kind of ministry philosophy. We should only be playing this kind of music. And we take on this arrogance that God needs me in order to fix his church. You're not the cornerstone. I'm not the cornerstone. 
So the first thing that we have to do as the church is make sure that our eyes are actually on the cornerstone, on him. Because if we don't focus on him, we will lose our purpose. We will lose our identity. The second metaphor we see in the Bible is that Jesus is the head of the church. So he's the cornerstone of the church, and he is the head of the church. Colossians 1.16, For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him, all things hold together, verse 18, and he is the head of the body, the church. Isn't that interesting the way that Paul lays that out? You ever notice that? He points out the majesty and authority of Jesus over the whole world. Jesus is the creator of all things. He created you. He created me. Everything that you see was created for and through Jesus. He was before all things. Before any of this world was, Jesus was. And he holds it all together. You ever thought about that? Nothing exists without the staining words of Jesus. So Jesus is in charge of it all. There is no authority higher than him. Every animal, every molecule, everything that you see is under the authority of Jesus. And Paul uses that language. And he says, and he is the head of the body the church. So my body goes wherever my head tells it to, right? If I wanted to do this, my head told it to do that. If I wanted to do the worm on stage, I'm not going to do it because my head's smarter than that, right? Don't want to get fired today or go viral. But if I were to do it, it would be my head that would tell my body to do it. In the same way, Jesus, as the head of the body, the church, he leads us where to go. Just like he has authority over kings and rulers, over the sun and the stars, over all the things that we see, he is the ruler of the church, as the head of the body. We go where the head tells us to go. And I want you to notice something. You'll notice this a couple times. Notice the intimacy in the metaphor. You ever notice that? This isn't a disconnected metaphor. Notice the the intimate, your head is intimately connected to your body. If you don't have a head, you don't have a functioning body. And I know that's weird to think about, (laughs) but if you don't have a head, you're dead. I did not mean for that to rhyme, Um, but it's just true, right? Your mind is the processing center for how you understand and operate the world. In the same way, Jesus is intimately connected with the church, with the body. There is no church without Jesus. If we are disconnected from him, we cease to exist. So he's the cornerstone and he is the head of the body. Jesus is in charge here. I'm not, you're not. Now when it comes to how Jesus relates to the church and how he interacts with his church, the Bible will describe three different ways that Jesus interacts with us, with us as his church. You've already seen it in some of the passages we read. So it's easy to remember. He will talk about the church being built up. He will talk about the church as the body. We've already seen this. And he will talk about the church as the bride. So easy, three Bs, right? We are being built up in Christ. We are the body of Christ. And we are the bride of Christ. So first, we are being built up by Christ. Ephesians 4.11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry by what? For building up the body of Christ. Ephesians 2.21, 1 
finishing that last text we read. In whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So God assembles, assembles his people to be built up in his name. And this is where we have to remember. This gathering, your time with the people of God, this is meant to be a refuge for your soul. This time. It's meant to bring you hope, to bring you energy, that God is taking our hopeless souls, and through his word, through his songs, through his people, he is breathing into us life. That's why it's such a tragedy when church is a drain, right? And something's off when that happens. Either there's something off with the church itself or something off with you, because this place is meant to give you energy. These people are meant to give you joy, right? That sometimes, though, we lose it. We begin to focus on ourselves and other people. We begin to focus on our flaws, the church's flaws, or everyone else's flaws, and we lose the joy of being a part of the body. Imagine a people. Imagine a people that instead of pointing fingers at themselves and at one another, where, where everyone walks in, I don't know if you've ever experienced everyone walks in and says, hey, look at me, look at me, look at me. Are they're, they're busy talking about and pointing out the flaws and everybody else. But imagine a place where as a group of people, when you walked in, everyone said, look to Christ. Look at him. Look at how good he is. Look at the joy that, come, that he builds up our understanding of who he is. He builds up, up our hope. He builds up our growth. He builds up our joy. You know, you know I think it's interesting. Um, I think there is this false narrative uh, that the enemy will bring when our lives get really busy. When we get exhausted in our life or when suffering comes um, or things just get hard, typically what's the first thing that's considered to cut out of our schedule? Church. Yeah, it's not the only thing, but it is one of them, assembling with the people of God that, that we're tempted to believe this lie that life is busy, so I need a break, and that break comes at these, um, the 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 cost of church. And look, I'm, if that's you, if you've done that, I'm not trying to make you feel guilty. That's not my goal. I get it. Life is hard. Life is busy. I understand. And when you're in the middle of it, yeah, there are probably some things you need to dial back on, some things that you need to choose to cut out. But listen, the church was never meant to drain you. That's not its design. If it is, something's off. Its design is to build you up and to give you, in the midst of suffering, in the midst of that busyness, to give you joy and hope. Because you're not going to find it anywhere else. And before you know it, so many times we cut out the very thing God has designed to build up our souls. Gathering with God's people to worship the risen Christ. So God builds us up in this place. This place is a refuge for your soul. You also see in Scripture that the church is the body of Christ. And I'm not going to talk about this one long. We're going to talk about this extensively in a couple weeks, but 1 Corinthians 12, 12, for just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews are Greek, slave are free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. That within this body we are unified by one thing, the blood of Christ. 
He goes on in 1 Corinthians to talk about the hand, the foot, the eyes, and how the hand is not, a, the hand is not an eye, and the eye is not a foot, and the foot is not a hand, and how we're all made and unique as the body of Christ. And we'll talk about that in a couple of weeks, but regardless of background, experiences, or ethnicities, we are all unified as the body of Christ, with Christ as the head. And lastly, the Bible talks about the church as the bride. I love this one. The bride of Christ. Ephesians 5.25. Listen to this description. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy, the church, and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one has ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. And so what does it mean that we are the bride of Christ? Here's what it means. It means that Jesus has initiated, he has pursued, and he has sacrificed so that the bride can be all that she was designed to be. That through the blood of Christ, we are presented as holy and without blemish. Husbands, do you want to know how to love your wives? You look at how Jesus has loved us, his church. And how has he loved us? Romans 5.8, God shows his love for us in this, us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. When the church was unlovely, when we were enemies of God, God moved towards us. He pursued us and he loved us, that he purchased his bride through his blood. None of us have earned our place. We did not earn the right to become the bride of Christ. He chose us. He sought us and he bought us. Again, notice the intimacy in the metaphor, right? Like a head connected to a body, like a husband with his bride. We are intimately connected. The head cannot just choose to disconnect from the body. You can't just choose to get a divorce. It's difficult. It's a covenant. It's lasting. And here's the deal. The intimacy in the metaphor is good news for us because as humans, we are all tempted towards isolation. We, we are tempted as human beings to isolate from God. We're tempted to isolate from others. And we're tempted to even isolate from ourselves and numb our minds with the things of this world. We're tempted to seek isolation from God, from the heavens. That we worship created things rather than the creator. We're tempted to isolate from each other. This is the loneliest, most bored generation. All the data says this, this generation is so bored and so lonely. We're tempted to isolate from ourselves because we're not at peace with who we are. And we numb our minds so we can escape the reality that I don't like me. And God moves towards us as the church. He says, let me build you up. Let me remind you of who you are. Let me re- remind you your place in the world about why I designed you. He says, you're my body. I give you a community. I give you a purpose that you're not meant to do this alone. And he says, you're my bride. You belong to me. And so you can have peace 
in my name. I remember when I was in college, um, I was pretty arrogant, surprise, um, which I'm sure many of you can relate. I don't think I've met a humble 19-year-old yet. Uh, I definitely wasn't. And I was just starting out in ministry, and I had all these ideas about what the church should be or what it shouldn't be, right? And I remember uh, texting um, one of my pastors and just saying, hey, can we get lunch? I've got some issues, right? And uh, not with myself, with you, is basically what I said. Um, and I just went on a rampage. Uh, I just began to pile on him everything that I thought was wrong with the church, every flaw that I could see. And I was just determined to tear down this American version of the church. And it wasn't like I was just angry for the sake of being angry. In fact, the things that I was saying, I was probably right. He, there was nothing that you could say to tell me that I was, I was wrong. I loved my church and I wanted the best for her. But what was coming out of me was not helpful. It was, I was frustrated and I wasn't giving solutions. And I'll never forget this pastor looking at me after I piled on him all my little teenage issues about the church. He looked at me and he said, you will never love the church more than Jesus does. And that phrase caught me off guard. And it threw down my defenses. And this reality hit me that the church will never be what I think it should be. It will always have flaws. It will never be perfect. But Jesus will always love his church perfectly. And because he loves his church perfectly, the question for me then is how am I joining him in his work to build up the church? See, we're really good at tearing stuff down as people. We're good at tearing ourselves down. We're good at tearing others down. We're good at tearing organizations down. We're good at tearing the church down. We're really good, doesn't matter who you are, at seeing flaws. If I said right now, hey, tell me five things bad about your day. If I said, hey, tell me five good things about your day. Uh, we're really good at tearing stuff down. We're not good at building. And Jesus did not give us a sledgehammer as the people of God. As much as we might want it, he didn't say, hey, Colton, your job is to go in here with a sledgehammer and just tear this thing down. No, he gave us his word. He gave us his people. He gave us his spirit and said, build. Build them up. Encourage them. And look, I'm not dumb. The church is messy. <laughs> it's very messy. You felt it probably in your own life. Many of you in this room probably have church hurt. A leader from a church or others in the church have hurt you in one way or another. And there's nothing I can say to excuse that. All I can say from, and we're going to get more into this later in the series, all I can say is that's not right. What happened to you, whatever it was, that was not okay. There's probably a lot of you who are disappointed in the church. But I want you to hear this. Yes, you can acknowledge the hurt on one hand. But please hear, Jesus loves his church more than you ever will. Because most of your hurt, it comes out of love. You want the church to be a certain way. You want leaders to be a certain way. You want the church to interact with the world a certain way. And so your hurt, it's, it's not selfish. It's genuine, and it matters. But you will never love the church more than Jesus does. Jesus has not given up on his church, and neither should you. Neither should I, neither should we. But the reality is Jesus is building a church of his people, and people are messy. But when 
Christ is the cornerstone, when Christ is the head and every person looks to him, there is joy among that people, along with the hurt, along with the disappointment. And that's tough. But I'm telling you, he's better. He's worth it. He loves you more than you think he does. And he loves his church more than you ever will. Look back at Matthew 16, verse 18. Jesus tells Peter, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. So he looks at Peter and he says, upon this rock I will build my church. Now this is one of the most debated passages in all of history. And the question that's centered around this text is, okay, is Jesus building his church on Peter himself or on the confession that Peter made? that Jesus is the Christ. Catholics would take the position that Jesus builds his church on Peter, the person, if you didn't know that. Because in the Catholic church, Peter is seen as the rock. The name Peter, Petros, means rock. So Peter has been given authority then over the church. And what they will say is that Peter at that time became the bishop of Rome. And now there is a line of persons that come from Peter that God has given authority over the church too. We know this person to be the Pope, right? Who rules over the Catholic church. So the origin of the Pope is Peter himself. Now, Protestants, which is gonna be, I'm gonna guess most of us, um, would disagree with this, right? This is one of two major disagreements with the Catholic uh, church and the Protestant church. So Protestants focus in on Peter's confession and Protestants will say, Um, that the rock is the confession that Jesus is the Christ. Now, where do I land on this? Well, obviously, I'm here. Uh, So uh, I I am obviously a Protestant. Um, But I don't think it's as simple as just saying, okay, it's the confession. I think it's a little bit deeper than that. And let me say this as far as Peter being the rock. Um, I, I think there's there's good argument for that. I mean, I don't think they're crazy. Uh, but I think it's pretty clear in Scripture that Peter is not infallible. Uh, a few v- verses later, Peter will say something stupid, and Jesus will rebuke him. He'll say, get behind me, Satan. So one could ask, is Peter the rock or is Peter Satan? I mean, just saying, right? So in one sense, I don't think Peter, as an individual, is the rock uh, that the church stands on. However, I think that the point that Jesus is making here is that there is truth that is proclaimed, but it is truth that is proclaimed by his disciple, by his people. His people proclaiming his identity. Remember the the central piece of this conversation. It's about the identity of Jesus. Who do they say I am? Who do you say I am? And it is his disciple that God gave truth to from the spirit. And he said, you are the Christ. And Jesus says, on that rock, I will build my church. So it's not just the confession. It's the confession of the people of God. That's what it is, I think. It's a confession that one of his disciples is making. And Peter, he takes this language of a rock, a stone, and he says in 1 Peter 2, 4, as you come to him, this is Peter, much later, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. He says, you come to him as a living stone. And as a living stone, 
You are chosen and precious. You are being built up into a priesthood. You're offering spiritual sacrifices. And Peter himself says that Jesus is the cornerstone. It's interesting, in the book of Revelation, uh, God gives us this metaphor. John says he sees the city of God coming down, the new heaven and the new earth. And he notes that the foundation stones of this city have the names of the apostles on them. And so if you put all the pieces of the Bible together, the picture throughout the Bible is Jesus is the cornerstone, the one on which the entire church is built, right? The foundation is the apostles, the ones who brought the very words of Jesus. And we, as living stones, are filling in the walls that we are being built up. See it? It's this beautiful picture. We don't tear down. We are being built And so the church is being built, is centered on the idea of people, right? Because the church is not a place you come to and you go from. You don't check in and check out. The church is the people of God. It's not just about this physical assembly. It's the spiritual assembly of all of God's people. That he is saying there are people from all over the world. Though they are separated geographically, we are united with them in Christ. You see this. Um, in the book of Acts, where you see the idea of church being talked about in two different ways, okay? One is a universal sense where the church is every person that has ever existed who has put their faith in Jesus, every person that would proclaim Christ crucified. So it's universal, that we are not connected geographically, we are connected universally. You see this in Acts 9, 31, it says, so the church, ecclesia, throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace, and was being built up. So he talks about the church and the singular. It's one church, but the church is spread out all among the regions, and it's being built up. So you see in one sense that the church is this unity with everyone. It's universal. It's global. Uh, I remember several years ago, I went to Brazil, and while I was there, uh, I met a young pastor there. He was around my age, and we started talking about his hobbies and what he likes to do for fun, and uh, we started talking about soccer. Because if you don't know this, in Brazil... Soccer is king. Everyone plays soccer. And I casually made the comment, bro, I I am terrible at soccer, right? And he started laughing, not because he saw me play. He was just laughing. Um, He laughed, but he said, he said, you may be bad at soccer, but you are my brother in Jesus Christ. It was almost like this, it's okay. I still like you because of Christ, right? (laughs) And I, I could see that he genuinely meant it. Like, it was a, I kind of laughed, but it was a serious comment that even though we don't know each other, we live thousands of miles apart. There's, we, we speak the same language. We don't speak the same language, but we do, if that makes sense. We have a common unity in Jesus that all of us here, we are connected to believers in Brazil, to believers in Iraq, in Iran, in Nigeria. I mean, we are, we are part of the same family because we're being built together in Christ. But you also see in Acts this local expression of ecclesia, that you see the church in Corinth, you see the church in Ephesus, that there is one church, right? One church, global, universal, but is expressed locally. That Jesus is calling people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation, people from all over the globe. But he's calling you to belong to a local expression of believers. So I don't know if you know this, but you've got family in India. You have family in China. You have family in Nigeria. You've got brothers and sisters all over the world that are praying for you. 
And we have brothers and sisters all over the world that we should be praying for. We are one global, universal church. But we are all committed to the mission of God through our local expressions. Um, the, the early church talked about brother and si- brothers and sisters so much that Rome thought they were committing incest. I mean, seriously, you, you talked about in church history. And um, one of the first criticisms of the church is, was that. And they were like, uh, no, you have misunderstood what we are doing. Um, and so, but the local church, it expresses itself in different ways. In fact, in this, there's not that many people here, but we've got Methodists in this room We've got Church of Christ. I know that you're here because you're always trying to sing the harmony on every song. Um, we've got Presbyterian. Uh, we've got former Catholics. We've got non-denoms. Um, I mean, in this little bitty faith family right here, we have people from all kinds of walks of life and different denominational. We're Baptists. I'm sorry. I know that makes some of you mad, right? But we've got all these different expressions here, right? But they're all unified in Christ expresses itself differently. Now, I've got it speed up. Um, Verse 18, let me read it again. I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell, that's how he ends it, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. What does that mean? Jesus is saying, what I am building will continue on. What I am building will continue on even beyond the gates of Hades. Now, what's he saying there? Is he saying that there are demonic powers in the world? And those demonic powers have a fortress. And that fortress is attacking us. And that attack cannot overpower us. Is that what he's saying? Not exactly. That might be a common interpretation. That's not what he's saying. Now, to be clear, there are demonic forces in the world. And I think that there is a lot of misunderstanding about spiritual warfare within the church. But what he's talking about here is death. When you hear about the gates of hell or the gates of Hades, It is typically talking about death. That is the place of the dead. And that imagery was used because when you die, the gates shut. Death is final. There is no coming back from it. So Jesus is saying, what I'm building cannot be defeated. Death cannot stop it. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Prevail against what? The church, the people that I am building. Why? Because I'm going to die on a cross. I'm going to take on the sin and shame of my bride. And so for them, there is no death. Therefore, the gates of hell, the place of death, shall not prevail because the people of God are alive. Because Christ is alive. We are who we are because Christ has risen from the grave and death has been defeated. The gates of hell will not prevail. There is no death for us. And because we are alive, the invitation for us is to worship, to find peace like we've never had before, to find healing that we've never had, to find rest and joy and hope and learn to trust God, learn to trust one another. Now let me close by just saying one more thing. The aim of the church is not for you to come to this place be filled with God's songs and God's word just for you to go home and disconnect yourself once again from God's word and God's people. This hour and a half, sometimes two hours, sometimes eight hours, this hour and a half each Sunday morning, this is not your church time. It's just not. 
It's not this thing you put on your Google calendar and says, this is when I commune with God and this is when I commune with God's people. The church is an expression that happens all throughout the week. The assembly does not stop at 11.15 every week. God has called us to many things, but two of them for sure is that he has called us to walk this life in faith together. You were never meant to do this alone. In fact, you can't do it alone. It will be bored, you will be bored, you will be tired, and you will be exhausted. So he's called us to community, and he's also called us to be ambassadors. 2 Corinthians 5.20, therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. Uh, one of my wife's favorite quotes, um, I've heard her say it many times, um, and actually I think she stole it from Brandon, who is one of my friends that's sitting right there. Um, but the quote is this, is that the gospel came to you on its way to somebody else. The gospel came to you on its way to someone else. Um, I think unintentionally a lot of times we practice life in a way that says the gospel ended with me. I was the last person to hear the gospel. It's this false belief that for thousands of years, the gospel has gone from person to person to person. Each person proclaiming to another person, look to Christ. But then when it gets to me, it stops. You are not the end goal of the gospel. I am not the end goal of the gospel. The gospel came to you on its way to somebody else. So it's not enough just to say, I heard the gospel and now I go to church. You've missed, you've missed it. The picture we see in scripture is that the gospel came to you and now you are equipped by the word of God, by the people of God, by the spirit of God to grow, to heal, to proclaim that gospel to somebody else, someone who's hurting, someone who's just filled with anxiety, someone who's filled with fear. It's to proclaim that gospel, look to the risen Christ. To proclaim it to someone who lives in the Middle East who has never heard the name of Jesus. Say, look to a savior that came and purchased you. So look outside of ourselves and look to the one who died the death that we did not deserve. So yeah, the church, yes, gathers so that we can be built up, encouraged, so that we can grow into the head of Christ. But then inevitably, we're going to scatter. But you do not scatter alone. You scatter by encouraging one another, encouraging one another to encourage others to look to the risen Christ. The gospel does not stop with us. I think if we're not careful, we can turn into a church that closes off its walls and we turn into a social club rather than a refuge for people looking for the gospel. The gospel does not stop with us. It goes through us on its way to somebody else. 